Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined by former Congressman Paul Hodes. In recent weeks, there's been an abrupt and significant change in the way scientists, political leaders, and the media have talked about the origins of the COVID pandemic. There was once consensus that the virus had come from an animal, but new questions have emerged from scientists. And by May 26th, even President Biden had called for a new, full, and transparent investigation into whether the virus actually emerged from a lab in Wuhan, China. The sudden change has led to questions about the interaction of science and politics, how the media covers science, and how scientists communicate what they think they know. Throughout most of the pandemic, for millions of readers and podcast listeners in the U.S. and around the world, Donald G. McNeil Jr. has been one of the most trusted, thoughtful, and clear explainers on the science of the coronavirus and public health measures to control it. He was the lead reporter on the COVID-19 pandemic for the New York Times. And his May 17 article in Medium titled, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Lab Leak Theory is widely credited with helping to catalyze this re-examination of where the virus came from. As someone who personally got used to trusting Donald's voice on all things COVID, I began to wonder what he made of this rapid change over the last three weeks. So I thought we'd ask him. Donald, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you very much for asking me. It's really a pleasure to have you. Could you walk us through what you thought initially of the lab leak hypothesis a year or so ago as the COVID pandemic was emerging? And then subsequently, what caused you to reevaluate your thinking? Okay. I, I should disagree a little bit with your lead in in that I'm not completely sure it's accurate to say that there was widespread consensus in the media that the animal spillover theory was correct and, and the lab leak theory was, was hogwash. It, I mean, there were definitely people following this up all through the last year. It's just, you know, the, the pandemic became such a large issue, thinking about the vaccines, now thinking about the variants, thinking about how many were going to die, thinking about lockdown, thinking about coming out of lockdown, all these other issues sort of took center stage. And admittedly, you know, having written about it in, in the spring and then not having seen spring of 2020 and not having seen my article run, I kind of took my eye off the ball and put it on other balls, if you like, you know, other, other things to look at, other things to write about. So, but anyway, to go back to the beginning of, of what you said, look, the whole idea that it was a lab leak emerged, as far as I can tell, almost instantly after we realized how big there was an epidemic was going on in Wuhan. And the first article I found that pushed it was in the Washington Times and said, essentially, headline said, virus could have leaked out of a lab in Wuhan. But when you actually read the article, all it said was, what a coincidence, the outbreak is taking place in the same town as this, you know, renowned virology lab, you know, sort of as if, if an outbreak started in Atlanta, you might naturally blame the CDC first without any evidence, you know, having developed any evidence yet, you'd suspect it anyway. And the only expert they quoted was an Israeli by a warfare expert who said it could have come out of a lab like this. And I called him to talk to him about it. And he said, he was very hesitant to talk. And he, but he, basically he said, I wasn't misquoted. 
I said it could have come out of a lab like a lab like this. That's all. So no evidence that it could have really, in the beginning, it was based just on a coincidence. You know, people like Tom Cotton and stuff picked that up. I'm a science writer, so I don't pay that much attention to what senators say or any politician says. I, I, you know, tend to go to the scientists and say, what do you think? In the beginning, you know, very quick, well, then several, another thing happened. In February, the Wuhan laboratory revealed that it had a virus in its freezers that was 96% identical to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And to many people, that seemed like, wow, that's it. That's a smoking gun. And then a lot of virologists were quick to say, no, 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 wait, you know, 96% identity in a, in a virus that's 30,000 nucleotides long literally means 40 years of evolution from whatever ancestor produced these two viruses. They've been diverging for a long time. So that's not much evidence, even though it sounds to non-scientific ears like, like a pretty good match. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's not very good evidence. Now, and then, you know, as, as the you know, it, as the sort of outcry grew, the notion that it was a lab leak grew, some scientists got together and wrote a really seminal paper saying, now remember, it wasn't just lab leak. What was going on was that people were saying, this is a Chinese bioweapon. It was deliberately released on the world. You know, they've been conducting germ warfare experiments. You know, this is something that they, you know, they meant to you know, hit the world with. And so it was really to counter that kind of notion that it was a deliberately bioengineered weapon of some sort. Five of the world's top virologists got together and wrote a pretty seminal paper called The Proximal Origins of uh, SARS-CoV-2 to show that basically their argument was, it, it was an incredibly complex paper uh, with, you know, receptor binding domains and, and uh, O-link glycans and, and you know, you know furin cleavage sites or polymasic cleavage sites and stuff in it. So it was very hard to get through, but essentially the argument they're making was, if you were a scientist and you wanted to create a bioweapon or to, or to make a virus more dangerous, you would start with a virus that was really close to a virus that is known to be dangerous, like SARS, like MERS, something like that. And this is not. And, and they showed that it had a very different, particularly very different re receptor binding domain, which is the end of the spike protein where it, where it binds to the cell, that it wasn't, like, it wasn't like SARS or MERS at all. It was a completely different, quote, solution to the problem of how to bind to a cell. And it also, there were other things, you know, the, the O-link glycan suggested that it had been evolving inside an animal because these are a defense against an immune system rather than being stored in a lab. The furin cleavage site was unusual, but there are furin cleavage sites and other viruses. So they basically said, look, this appears to be a lab, the kind of thing you'd find in an animal, not the kind of thing that somebody bioengineered in a laboratory to make a weapon out of. So, and, and, and can you just remind yes. us, what's the time frame here that, you, that you're talking about? Because it, it sounds like you're referring to, this was the thinking during 2020. And it sounds to my ears like it was reasonable as you, as, a, as an expert sifter of scientific information and what you're hearing from scientists, it was reasonable to conclude based on the available evidence at the time that the animal origin hypothesis was pretty darn likely. Yeah, they were making a pretty strong scientific case. Meanwhile, the people who were saying, well, we think it came out of a lab had nothing to offer. I, I mean, the, the scientists were all speaking completely on the record and in great detail. I had a colleague who had sources within the national security apparatus, not necessarily Trump administration sources, but just sources who were saying, could have been a lab leak. You know, we knew about some problems in that lab in the past. You know, could have been something they were playing with. But those sources were all off the record and not not able to provide any evidence saying, you know, saying that this. So it, the, the counterbalance of the evidence was heavily in favor of the animal spillover theory. That brings us to sort of, you know, late February, early March. I wrote a draft of the story 
it never got printed because it, partially it was 4,000 words long. It was full of all of the scientific gobbledygook. And my editor just kind of went, oh, God, you know, how are we going to turn this into English, you know, for the average? And I thought I was doing a good job of turning it into English. But anyway, it was still pretty, pretty heavy. And also there was this split within the Times where the national security reporters were leaning, you know, their sources leaned heavily on the idea of it being a lab leak or, or something, something, you know, weapon, lab leak, whatever. And the, whereas the scientists who, who were the best virological geneticists who understood this stuff said, no, it doesn't look like that. Then I did another version of the story in April, updating it with more after the RATG 13, that's the 96% identical virus came out. And I explained more why, why that was, why that, why it's not surprising that they found it in their freezers. And basically the shorthand way of putting it is there's this thing called the RDRP gene, which is a little bit of the genome. You don't, you know, you collect, when you go into bat caves, you collect thousands of samples of viruses and you're collecting blood and fecal pellets and things like that. And you can't sequence all these viruses. You can't grow all these viruses out in culture. It's just massively unwieldy and expensive. So you'll look for ones that might be interesting. And one thing you do is you create a set of bookmarks by sequencing this little bit of a gene called the RDRP gene, which tends to be different from virus to virus, but not to change very much as that virus evolves. And you kind of store these as your bookmarks. So when a when a, sim when a dangerous virus comes into view, like SARS-CoV-2, you'll look through your bookmarks and see if you have anything that looks like it. And it happened that RATG13, this virus, the one that was 96% identical, had you know the same bookmarks. So they sequenced it all and found at least, but, but it was explained to me, look, it's just one of thousands of viruses they have in the freezer. And they don't always post all these bookmarks to GISAID or GenBank or the other public databases. And the person who told me this, Peter Daszak of Echo Health Alliance said, you know, I've also seen a private list of, of their RDRP genes or bookmarks, and it's not there either. So this was just a virus that they had, one of hundreds of viruses they looked at, it seemed to be of no interest at the time, so they popped it back in the freezer. So that's, that was sort of the, the gist of the story I wrote saying that the lab leak theory is unlikely and, you know, the animal spillover is the most likely. And that story never ran. And I was frustrated, but it was because there were these disagreements and it sort of went on back and forth. You know, little more information came out of the Trump administration. There was this rumor about a woman, a lab assistant in the lab who maybe got infected and went home and infected her boyfriend and he went to the Huanan seafood market. But when you hear the stuff, you say, okay, well, how do you know? What it, well, my sources told me, well, how do they know? You know, even if you can't name your source, can you explain exactly how they know? And the answer was never clear, you know, because those kinds of sources don't say, well, actually, we're able to read the emails of everybody inside the lab or whatever, because that would give up to the you know, government in Beijing how good your signal intelligence is. So it was sort of a stalemate between the people, you know, the science writers saying, well, most likely it's animal spillover, and the national security writers who were kind of leaning towards we got to write. And, you know, we had some significant arguments and I got, you know, told off by an assistant managing editor for speaking too rudely to my colleagues. I basically accused them of ignoring a lot of what I'd written because it had too many big words in it. And that wasn't very nice of me. And, you know, I get told, Donald, we don't speak that way to our colleagues here. And, you know, I have a temper and I, but then I apologize because, you know, that happens to me a lot. So that's where things read back to you. And, and I want to let Paul jump in, but let me just read back to you what I, what I just heard kind of from a, a 30,000 foot level. It sounds to me like you were doing some very diligent reporting. You were doing what you're supposed to do as a reporter. You're looking at sources, you're, you're looking at scientific information, you're talking to lead scientists. And what you're finding is a pretty high mountain of evidence supporting the idea that 
This is a spillover event from an animal. This virus did not come from either an intentional or accidental lab product, as had been alleged. There are some loose rumors. There are, there are some allegations. There are political overtones to those allegations, but you don't find anything truly strong and supporting. And just to add one more layer of what I'm hearing here, it sounds like this was the subject of much discussion within the New York Times newsroom, that you were not trying to follow some kind of blanket, here's the story here, we are, this is definitely from an animal. You're, you're sifting through it. You're trying to understand what you're hearing from lots of sources and lots of uh, pieces of evidence. Yeah, that's an accurate recount. Also, I should point out, look, I don't have any sources in China. I don't know anybody in that lab who works in that lab. I know scientists who have sources in China or who've worked in China and know people in the lab, and I've, I've talked to them. You know, the national security reporters were also talking to national security people who have sources within China, one supposes, but they may not be able to describe who those sources are or how they get them. So yeah, this was a serious search for the answer. And, and you know, we didn't have the answer then. We still don't have the answer now. All we have is a sort of, you know, we've had a slight shift of emphasis in the last few weeks about whether or not we ought to consider the lab leak theory a little harder. And that's, that's where things stand now. Now, during that time that I say I took my eye off the ball and concentrated on other things, like would we ever have a vaccine, there were people who were absolutely digging into this harder and harder. And I didn't pay enough attention to what was going on you know, January 2021, February 2021, some of the other stuff that's come out recently. And it was only three weeks ago when my colleague, former colleague, Nicholas Wade, wrote an article for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists saying we need to look at the lab leak theory again. And a lot of people sent it to me saying, what do you think? And I looked at it and originally my reaction was kind of dismissive because I didn't agree with the way he described the beginning of this theory. He acted as if it would began by people from the <clears throat> pro- China, whatever group trying to swat it down. And in fact, no, it began in, you know, as far as I could tell, way over on the far right in, in conspiracy theories. They said, this is a bioweapon. It's got HIV genes in it. It's got snake genes in it. You know, the Chinese are always doing this kind of thing to us. And it, it began in this, in this very conspiracy minded, you know, essentially in the same people who brought us Pizzagate and, and QAnon and everything else. And so I, I disagreed with the way, and I disagreed with the attacks on Tony Fauci and Peter Daszak because I've known both of them for a long time. And I know that they have always told me the truth. Sometimes the truth changes, the facts change. You have to change what you know, but they have always, as far as I can tell, told me the truth about what they knew at the time. But, but as I looked harder and harder into the sources, the, the, the stories that he linked to in there, stories by Yuri Dagan, stories by uh, Rosanna Oh, I've forgotten her last name, Segreto, I think it is. Stories by Josh Rogan, you know, a number of stories. As I read deeper into these, I realized, wow, a lot of small things have piled up over the last year that I have not paid attention to. And those make me, and, and, and a lot of stuff that I did know was going on, like the, like the, the fact that the Chinese, that the, the government in Beijing has been acting like it has something to hide, that it made it very difficult for the WHO to do an independent investigation. When, when Australia called for a very independent open investigation, China slapped it with, with trade sanctions. I, you know, they, they've been acting like somebody who doesn't want this looked into, and that raises suspicions. Um, and then if you want me to go into some of the other changes, the you know, things that came out, I can, I can do that. It came out in the last year. I mean, um, one of the most important ones was that <clears throat> that virus that I mentioned, the 96% one, RATG13, that stands for uh, Rhinolophus affinis. It's a type of bat. TG is for Tonguan caves and 
if 13 is gathered in 2013, that same virus, but under another name, they had been they had been looking at it. it was the name was bat coronavirus 4991 and they had been looking at it for several years so i previously had the impression this was just some virus sitting in a freezer that nobody paid any attention to but no some work by yuri dagan and others said no this is the same this is a virus that they gathered in a cave where they knew a bunch of miners had been digging bat guano and some of those miners had gotten pneumonia and some of them died so, and, and they had sequenced this virus as far back as 2015 and realized that it was fairly SARS-like. Well, that changes things. That's not just some random virus that you happen to find in the freezer two weeks after the you know, epidemic broke out. This is a virus that you knew was a suspect in a fatal pneumonia and that you knew was somewhat SARS-like. So if you were looking for a virus to fool around with in a laboratory, it would be a candidate virus. Now, it's still very different, but if you were fooling around with it, you would potentially do work like take the backbone of the virus and splice the receptor binding domain, the, the you know, the, the onto, you know, the, where it attaches to the cell onto that backbone and see what you got. And could it infect human cells or something like that? Or could it infect mammalian cells better than the, better than the original viruses? you might be tempted to put in a furin cleavage site, which is how the, the virus cleaves to the outside of the cell and splits. And that's how it injects Af after, it, after it attaches, then it, then it splits open and that's the cleaving and that pushes the RNA into the cell to, to complete the infection. You, might, you can insert one of those artificially too. And there's lots of different you know, furin cleavage sites that are around. And this kind of work is the kind of work that the director of the lab had been trained to do in North Carolina. and in North Carolina, Ralph Barrick, the professor there, who's the biggest expert on, on manipulating coronaviruses, had invented, quote, no seum techniques, which means they don't leave traces, which are sort of an improvement of the older traces. So it, so all this is, it, it might have been possible to do this, and it was a more likely candidate than it had seen before to do this kind of work with. So that, that to me, changes. And, and the fact that that wasn't revealed when RITG, the, RATG 13 was first described, struck me as kind of suspicious. It's kind of an odd thing to have left out. Like I said, none of this is proof. You know, we still don't know, but it just, it sort of makes you want to say, hey, this needs a harder look. This needs more transparency from the government. We want to know what were the labs doing and not just the Wuhan Institute of Virology, also the Wuhan CDC, the one that's closer to the market, because they were, they had bad coronaviruses too. And there's talk that there might be a military lab within the Wuhan Institute of Virology that maybe you know, if, if, if numerous people were trained in this technique, maybe Shi Zheng Li, the so-called bat woman, the one who was in charge of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, didn't know everything that was going on everywhere in both labs. Or maybe, you know, she is under constraint from the government not to describe everything that happens. I mean, some of this depends on how, now people who know her, who, people who I know who know her say that she has always told them the truth. But, you know, the stakes have gotten a lot higher in China about, you know, avoiding an investigation. And, and we know, that scientists have come under serious pressure to, to shut up or to sort of toe the government line. There was clearly pressure to toe the government line on the idea that the virus came into the country on frozen food, which seems almost absurd. Yes, it can survive on the surface of frozen food, but you think that there would be an outbreak wherever the frozen food was before it got frozen, you know, and got shipped to China. So, uh, you know, a lot of pressure comes down on, on Chinese scientists. So this is what made me think, huh, 
there's more here than I realized and and maybe we should pay attention. I, I, I didn't do a huge amount of original research on this. I did call up Ian Lipkin to talk about it because I've known him for a long time. And he literally changed his mind over the course of a day or so as we were talking. It was the first time he had said, look, I still think what I thought then, all the signs of animal origins. And, but then when he looked more at some of the documents, he went, wait a minute, some of this research took place at BSL2, even as late as 2020, that's insane. That should not happen. He said, this is, these are way too dangerous viruses to be playing with. That's the kind of situation that might make for a lab leak. One of the questions that I'm curious about, Donald, from your point of view is about the way media coverage started, the way it evolved, why it evolved the way it did, and, and how, where you, what you tried to navigate through the blizzard of media coverage. And, and just as a sort of jumping off point, to take us from the sublime and scientific to perhaps the ridiculous in preparation for today's shows, I went online and looked at some reporting by the, the periodical, the US Sun, part of the, the, the British paper, I believe. And there was a report I found from about a week ago or so that claimed that that Wuhan laboratory technicians collecting specimens in caves had been bitten by bats through their protective gear. And there was some quote about the fangs penetrating their gloves. And then they, they went back to the laboratory. And this was sort of a, a, a it struck me as a kind of excellent tabloid approach to a combination theory of animal and laboratory, because if the workers had gotten infected in the labs and then gotten back to the labs and then gone out in public, we would have a, 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 an animal origin lab leak theory, but not really from the work done by the lab. And I, I bring it up just because it's, it's, it's one of the kinds of, of speculative articles that is now out there as this controversy rages. What was your take on how the media was covering all this over the, over the past period of time and, and about where, where, where we are now in terms of the media coverage? Well, I always hate questions that say, what is the media doing? Because the media is not one thing thinking with one brain. It's hundreds of reporters who disagree with each other and have different political bents and different areas of expertise. And they're always kind of doing their catfighting in public. So I'm the media. The New York Times is the media. The Fox News is the mass media, even though they like to, you know, disguise the fact that they're mainstream media. They're, the, they're bigger than any other TV station. You know, the Sun in the UK is the media. And for that matter, uh, you know, Infowars is the media too. And, you know, the, you know, the source of, of conspiracy series. So what you saw, I think, was really just a lot of people battling it out in public over these various theories, announcing bits of bits of evidence that they found each time and then, you know, trashing each other's bits of evidence. And, you know, some of that, you know, the Twitter is media, too, because a lot of information comes out there first and then finds its way into the actual, you know, the people who own actual printing presses. So I think what you saw was that now at at the major liberal, I, I, you know, I hate all these words, you know, what do you, how do you describe 
the New York Times, the, you know, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Washington Post, CNN, you know, some people would say this is the liberal elite media, but this stuff was debated, you know, on CNN and on Fox. This stuff was, you know, the Wall Street Journal has a different editorial position on most things. A friend of mine likes to call them the syndicate. I, I, I strongly okay. disagree with that appellation. However, I, I think we, well, we recognize the group you're talking about, the, the, the kind of leading outlets that are generally seen to be liberal leaning. Yeah. Okay. Well, some of them. So they they were divided, and and they were also out competing with each other on the same story, and and trying to get. I mean, I think there was a serious effort to get facts, and that has been tough. You know, information out of China has been very hard to come by, and 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 there's been an awful lot of take our word for it, and also information out of both the Trump administration and the Biden administration has been on the lines of take our word for it too. We can't tell you how we happen to know that. You know, supposedly three people went to the hospital in in November. You know, I, I heard that and I thought, okay, interesting scoop by the Wall Street Journal, but it doesn't. You know, I don't necessarily find that persuasive because three people going to the hospital, you know, in a very large institution like the Wuhan Institute of Virology during the height of flu season doesn't tell me that a brand new pandemic has cut loose on the world. It tells me that you know three people got sick, and I don't, you know, who they are, what their diagnoses were. You know, you want to know more details and you want to know how they know. If it just happens to be somebody who got drunk over a beer one night and didn't realize he was talking to a CIA agent, you know, people boast. You get information all the time. Even when you cover City of New York, you get you get all these rumors that turn out not to be true. It's very hard to to suss out these things, you know, fr from a distance. So I I mean I I don't believe in a in, in the notion that there was a giant conspiracy. We all sat down together and agreed to Stick with the stick with the animal spillover theory rather than the. I, I know that nobody drew me into that conspiracy. I know that I was, you know, arguing on on that side, but I wasn't persuading everybody. But I know that just you know time moved on because there was so little evidence, there was so little that was new, and that's that's the main thing that we do in the business. We try to introduce new stuff, and you know, and then recently, it's not as if a lot of new stuff has come out. But I think Nick's article, my article, and and the fact that other people were looking at it sort of said, hey. There's a lot more newish stuff here that has been paid attention to for the last six months. And that has led people to say things like, hey, we ought to ask more questions, harder questions. And I'm quite, I was quite surprised to hear somebody like Ann Shuckett of the uh, CDC said this morning, she's retiring from the CDC. I've known Ann Shuckett for a long time. She's very, very careful in what she says. She avoids controversy virtually at all costs, she never criticizes anyone. But, and she said she didn't think we had all the answers and she'd like to see a better investigation. She wouldn't go deep in that, but, but that's, you know, I, I consider her an extremely credible person on this and, and very non-political too. So, you know, the- well, Let me ask this, to what, degree, to what degree do you think that this all points to a basic problem in how people communicate about science? And uh, you are one of, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's going too far to say that you are a world leading expert on how to communicate about science and science deals in uncertainty. It deals in probability. It deals with competing theories, some of which are a lot more likely based on evidence and some of which are a lot less likely. One of the things that we've run into throughout the course of the pandemic is, as you've already alluded to, an evolving understanding of what we know. We saw this early on with guidance from the CDC about mask wearing. We saw this about our understanding about whether the COVID was virus was spread through aerosolization. And so as that understanding has evolved, the guidance from public health professionals and scientists has changed. That's awfully different 
the way you talk about that from the way we do our political discourse these days, which deals in assertion, certainty, confidence. And so is, is that sort of some of the, is that some of the problem here? Is that some of the mismatch that you see here? Well, so I'm a science reporter. My, my, my nightmare all my life has been to have to cover the White House, you know, the State House in Albany, City Hall. You know, Russell Baker used to describe covering Washington as cooling your heels in the corridors of power, waiting to be summoned into high ceiling rooms to be lied to. So I like covering science. And one of the things as a science journalist, as like a scientist, you have to be honest about what you don't know and what you can't know. And if you can, you have to say, here's the steps we have to go through in order to know this. Look, I'm friends with Dennis Overby, who's, you know, who covers the universe for the New York Times. I mean, Dennis's writ is enormous. Some of the things, some of those theories that he writes about aren't going to be testable until somebody spent $3 billion building a super collider or until we've waited another 2 billion years to see whether or not, you know, this dark matter fades out, you know, and fades off stage left instead of stage right or whatever it is. I don't understand anything Dennis writes about. And Dennis has the same problem with me. And, uh, you know, but, I, but he does it brilliantly. And, and but my, my point is just that you have to be honest about what you, what you don't know and, 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 you know, how you can get there. You have to be honest with your readers and you also have to, you know, the print itself has to be honest and saying, look, I don't know this. And that's why I tried when I wrote the piece of medium to say, look, we may never know. This may end up as a cold case. We may never, you know, looks like I'd like to know who killed Kennedy. I'd like to know who betrayed Ossip Mandelstam during the Stalin administration. I'd like, you know, there are a lot of mysteries that we haven't completely gotten to the bottom of yet because we don't have the proof. But, and this may be something like that permanently, but a better investigation is warranted. It sounds a little bit like the Donald Rumsfeld theory of reporting, the known knowns, the known unknowns, the unknown knowns, and, the, and, and, then, and then every and everything else. Absolutely. The, 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 challenging, the challenging thing as a layperson, and if I, if I fold myself back into the, the, the pool of people reading newspapers or looking for things online or just getting, hearing all of this, over the period of time that a, a health, a, a global health crisis is developing, okay? So there's the global health crisis that's developing. There is the political atmosphere around the global health crisis. And then there is our sources of information, the media, whether, whether liberal or conservative or online or offline. However, there is all this information that's coming uh, at us, and as a member of the public, it has become increasingly difficult to to separate the hysterical political atmosphere from the reporting about all of this, with because they're so intertwined, and and we've had a political attack on science that has happened. Ap it's been going on for a while, but it seemed to me to escalate. During the period that we that this pan, that we have been working through this pandemic, so for serious science writers who use real scientific terms and who are who are used to the nuance of science and developing facts and developing evidence and developing theory, it must be a very frustrating environment to work in. How, how as a journalist in the midst of this kind of, let's call it 
societal chaos, disease, politics, and evolving facts. How do you keep your head on straight and 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 make and 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 try to make sense of this for people in a way that people can understand? I try to concentrate on the facts and what we can know and what we can't know. Because if I get into the, you, you know, in, in the comments I got in my articles and in the emails I get personally, including even from, you know, from members of my, my own family who are, you know, off, pretty far off to the political right, there's this, nobody wants to talk about 4991 versus RATG 13. People want to scream, you know, Fauci should die, you know, or, or, or you know, or, or this is, you know, we've been sold out, you know, I hate the Chinese. And I, I was like, no, that's not what I was writing about and not what I was talking about. You know, just... And, and stop it, you know, you don't go threaten scientists, you know, with death. I don't think you should threaten scientists with death. I don't think you should threaten journalists with death. I don't think really you should threaten anybody with death because particularly if you're just angry about something, you know, but the stakes are very high because 600,000 Americans have died. You know, I mean, for most of my career when I was covering malaria in Africa or, you know, multi-drug resistant tuberculosis in Vietnam or places like that, I was writing about places where people died far, far away. Lots of people were dying of these diseases, but they weren't Americans. And so I was happy when one of my stories got like 35,000 readers, you know, you know, something about a new treatment for malaria that might save babies in Africa and a bicycle ambulance that they had developed that looked like it'd be get babies to the hospital faster, things like that. If I got 35,000 readers, I was pretty happy. Some of my pandemic stories have gotten, the, the record was 7 million readers, you know? And so, I mean, think of what a change that means just, just for me, for the amount of pressure on me you know, from the bosses, to some extent, you know, it's suddenly that plus the, the daily turned me into a public figure, which I'd never been over the course of, you know, 30 plus years at the times, that 40 plus years at the times. And, you know, so I, I, you know, towards the end, I began to feel sort of like a Confederate statue that there were a lot of people who kind of were a little tired of me and wanted to see me, you know, knocked down and trampled in the mud. And, and, and well, behold, that happened. But you, you feel this more intense pressure, but it's pressure for good reasons. I mean, you know, it is my responsibility to get things highly accurate because people are, Americans are dying as a result. I mean, I always feel it was my responsibility to get things accurate because people always were dying in the field I wrote about. In a weird way, it was like being a war correspondent, except you were, the enemy was these viruses or these bacteria or these parasites, not people with guns. And so I kind of always had to get it right, but now the pressure to get it right increased enormously during this pandemic. Because people were listening to you. I remember myself, I would listen to you on the daily and, you know, I, I was taking cues from, yeah, it's probably okay to touch this pole on the subway. It's probably not okay. I want to- I, I was wrong about some of these things, you know? I mean, I, I, I try to admit my mistake, you know, we overestimated the, the, the danger from touch. We underestimated the danger. We underestimated the usefulness of masks and we underestimated the, the transmission from aerosol in the beginning. Now, there were reasons for that. If anybody wanted to go to that thing, you know, the studies were bad. There were very few studies on masks until this pandemic came along. And, and so people went with the evidence they had at the time. And the evidence changes, you change your, not, it's not advice in my case, because I'm a journalist, not a public health official, but I, you change what I, I change what I think, I, what I do in my life and what I think maybe other people, you know, might do. Well, I, you know, what strikes me about this entire conversation is, to me, it's a really fascinating lifting of the veil behind the, the consideration that goes into every, every story you write, every utterance you have, and you're very aware of how big the audience is becoming and 
the, the, the stakes, the consequences of some of the information you're communicating. And for people viewing it from the outside, I can tell you, because I've been in a lot of these conversations, this is primarily a politics and government focused show. People from the outside glom on a, a partisan political lens to these things. And they, and they assume that there is a partisan agenda. There's a political agenda to these kinds of things where as actually it, it sure sounds to me like there's an awful lot of intricate sausage making going on behind the scenes. And what comes out is, is not being directed by, we will go with this party line. It is a we're, we're doing our best to grapple with a lot of complexity here. That, that was a piece of commentary. I, I want to link it to one other thing. You wrote an article this week on, uh, it's a continuation on the COVID theme, where you talk about the new WHO naming convention for COVID variants. And you point out, I think in very entertaining ways, kind of how silly their new Greek letter-based naming convention is. And the fact that it's it's largely motivated by trying to avoid stigmatizing countries that might be associated with COVID variants. When you see this kind of approach that, that is born of kind of a communications, political sensitivity standpoint, what do you make of it? Do you think that there is kind of an infection of, of, of this kind of baseline politics into the way we communicate and do science? On that question, I mean, look, I wrote that piece mostly to have some fun. I mean, yeah, you know, because I've been writing some serious stuff. But I, but I, but it, it ended with a serious end about you know how how do we what might be a better way of naming viruses or variants or things like that. I mean, yeah, th that part of science has been uh, infected with political correctness to to a high degree. There is a, there is a great worry about stigmatization. Now, I feel there's two kinds of stigmatization. There's sometimes there's simply naming the source of the virus, which I consider an objective thing to do to to say where it came from as best you know where the first sample was found versus doing the kind of deliberate race baiting that Donald Trump was doing with calling it Kung Flu, with calling it the China virus, the, you know, the, the kind of, the, and, and deliberately trying to blame it, not just on the government in Beijing, but on the Chinese people and on the, the nation of China. That I consider completely irresponsible. I mean, that's, you know, it's taunting people with something that is, you know, causing deaths. It's not, it's, it's, it's not, it's just not smart, especially since we relied on China for a lot of, raw materials for for vaccines and and uh, you know ppe and things like that it's just you know race baiting is never a smart move so but i know i mean this this comes up all the time in that in that atmosphere that you uh oh we can't call this the hong kong flu because it will stigmatize hong kong we can't call it the asian flu can't call it the spanish flu well spain survived being called the spanish flu that flu might have started in kansas kansas would have survived you know if it had been known as the kansas flu instead the UK variant, there will always be in England. You know, the British didn't go, oh my God, you're slandering us and we're going to cry now. They just kind of said, yeah, this UK variant. In fact, there they call it the Kent variant. Now there are two American variants. One started in New York and one started in, in Los Angeles. So I proposed a, one solution, which is actually a solution that has been used before in Ebola, in Machupo virus and a number of, of other viruses. You don't name it after the city and certainly not after any people or any ethnic group in the city. You name it after something innocuous that is still geographical, but is nearby, like the Ebola River. I mean, the Ebola virus actually broke out in a town called Yambuku in Zaire. The people who discovered it did not want to stigmatize Zambuku or Zaire, so they called it the Ebola after a river. It means Black River in, in, the, in Lingala, the local language. Machupo virus, the same thing. It was actually a town, San Cristobal, something like that, that it came from, but they 
so, but those things, they're memorable. They're a whole lot more memorable than the alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, and that's where my Greek alphabet you know, starts to wander off. And, and, and they're also much easier to remember than B1.17.1 or something like that, which is, you know, and, and, and that's just the beginning of the numerical uh, names for these things. So I, I think we got to do something like that. You know, you could, you could, you could have called the 2009 swine flu, the La Gloria flu, because that was a town it started in and not that many people would have suffered stigmatization. Mexico wouldn't have suffered, you know, suffered stigmatization from that. And, you know, but anyway, I mean, we got to find a better system than, than alpha, beta, gamma, delta, because for one, there's 24 letters in the alphabet, and then, then where are you? It's going to be more variants than that before this is over. Well, I think it connects the dots nicely because it, it does point out the sort of, there, there's a very fine line between legitimately not wanting to buy into what was clearly race baiting, clearly clearly a political agenda from our former president and something that kind of strays into silliness. I will tell you, I grew up in view of the Hudson River. Paul, you did too. I don't think either of us would be offended if we decided to up and call the East Coast variant Hudson virus, which I think was one of your suggestions. We're going to have to wrap it up here. Donald G. McNeil Jr. is a veteran journalist, as Paul said, was the lead New York Times correspondent on the COVID pandemic and has provided a tremendous amount of valuable public service as one of the people who really did see you as the go-to source for what do we know, what do we think, is maybe the best practice for public health. What do we think is maybe a little bit more dangerous? I've really appreciated your reporting over the course of the last uh, year plus. It's been incredibly valuable to the US and the world. And we really appreciate you appearing on Beyond Politics. Well, thank you. You're very nice. And thank you for for, uh, inviting me on to Beyond Politics. This is Beyond Politics for former Congressman Paul Hodes. I'm Matt Robeson. We'll see you next time.